Thank you, Mary. I think the last time I preached when Adam was gone, I had the topic of hell. And this time he's leaving and he says, hmm, we're on the part about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he gave me an out to preach something else. So I am going to choose something else and let him tackle that one. And I love John 9. We're in John 9 today. We're going to go through 1 through 38 our passage. I am going to jump around a little. Uh, We're going to really focus on verse 2 and 3 for a bit. And you know, it's interesting looking up titles for this sermon. There's just not a lot of fancy titles for the man born blind. The only other thing I could think of is here's mud in your eye. But I didn't want to use that. So the true identity of the man born blind. Who is the man born blind? I mean, in John's gospel, many of the characters have no name. I kind of love that John does this because any one of us can step into that story. We can see ourselves as a woman given living water, a disciple loved by Jesus, and a man healed of blindness and given sight. John also prefers the word sign instead of miracle. Disease, pestilence, deformity, and death have infested our world since the fall of the garden, fall in the garden. But when we look back in the Old Testament, all of these are still normal and ever present. And yet, there are only about six occasions where an actual physical healing happened and about three were brought back to life. When Jesus arrives on the scene, miracles explode. Jesus performed more miracles related to giving sight to the blind More than any other miracle, only Jesus healed the blind. Jesus can turn darkness into light. These signs are to confirm he is the Messiah. This miracle we're talking about today impresses doctors the most as far as medical miracles go. Even in the advanced world of medicine, in our world today, we might hear someone remarkably healed of a chronic disease, whose cancer mysteriously disappears, or even someone revived after death. Occurrence is so rare and incredible that most of us would call these miracles. However, blindness from birth is unmistakable and permanent. Despite all the advances of modern medicine, there is no cure. This man born blind is an outcast. He's resigned to begging. He's grown accustomed to living in darkness because he understands perfectly well that his defect is permanent. Sometimes we are so engulfed by our own darkness due to physical or mental illness, due to poverty, due to family or personal conflict, due to trauma, due to personal loss, and so on. We too are resigned 
to ourselves staying stuck and sick. Lucky for us, Jesus is always passing by. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind since birth. In those days, a common culprit was the diseases we have today where prenatally a baby would come up born blind because the mom had a disease. And VD was a big culprit. Now, I want to do a quick exercise so you're going to have to trust me. All your valuables will still be there. I want everybody to close your eyes just for a second. Close your eyes. I'm going to mention three things. Three things. Here we go. Natadola Beach in Fiji. McMurdo, the scientific research station in Antarctica. And the famous Val's Cheeseburger from Haywood, California. Okay, you can open your eyes. Anybody ever been to those places? Not a one, but I bet you pictured something in your head when I mentioned those because you've seen something like that. This man today was born blind and doesn't even know what the color blue is. He didn't see a thing. Water, a human being, trees, even if you described it. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? This question is crucial. It's easy had this man been some sort of schmuck. Maybe he deserved it. Too often our opinions and perspectives blind us to what others really need. Our snap judgments and opinions blind us of really seeing the other person as God sees them. We hear of difficulty in someone's life, and we tend to be far more interested in the breakdown of the what, why, when, and where than we are being compassionate and seeking what we can do to help. I mean, I don't think any of us today would come across a person who was born blind or deaf, or missing a limb, or with Down syndrome, and our first thought is, wow, I wonder what their parents did to deserve that. But what about us? Are we just like the disciples here? Do we ever say things like this? Is that ever our attitude when we meet someone in a tragic situation? Somebody on the side of the road begging. A young woman's raped at a college party and people ask questions like, what was she wearing? How much did she have to drink? Maybe we see families stuck in endless cycles of poverty. And we ask, why do they keep having kids? Why don't they learn to manage money better? Or my favorite, we see a homeless person holding their miserable story on a cardboard sign and immediately pass judgment. Well, that story isn't true. Probably just end up taking my money and spend it on booze or drugs. You have to be careful, you know. Some people might take advantage of you. Why don't they just get a job? My favorite. Well, let me ask you this. Do you know how many homeless people have jobs? In a 2021 study by the University of Chicago, they found 53% of people who live in homeless shelters have jobs, and 40% of unsheltered people are employed. 
we constantly go around asking the same questions the disciples just did. Look, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion, a perspective, or an idea. But there's everything wrong with trying to impose your perspective or opinion on somebody else based only on your assumptions, without knowing any facts, and worse, playing the role of God. In Bible times and even today, it was a common belief that if tragedy and suffering happened to you, it was because you committed some great sin. Suffering is proportionate to sinfulness. Tragedy is a sure sign of God's judgment. It's the total opposite of the prosperity gospel. Yes, evil and suffering are the ultimate result of sin. We do need to look and pause sometimes and see where we need to repent. But there was a lot of bad theology after 9-11. Jesus talks about this in Luke 13, 1-5. When those making a report to him were looking for Jesus to offer some explanation of why bad things happen to normal people. This was two incidents he was talking about in this text. Pilate violently massacring Galileans along with their sacrificial animals whose bloody mingled together. And the second one was the 18 killed when the Tower of Siloam fell over and crushed them to death. Jesus asked both times, do you suppose that these were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered such things? And both times he answered, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. Jesus says, not so fast. It's a mistake to automatically assign tragedies as a punishment from God and assume that the victims were somehow worse sinners than everybody else and deserved to die. That was point number one he made. The second most significant point he makes is in all of Scripture, yells at us, is that Jesus knows exactly what we all need most. Jesus' point regarding both events is that everyone... Everyone needs to repent or perish. And that word perish means face judgment. Rather than assigning sin to these folks killed, focus on your own sin. Make sure you have repented because you all face physical death and it could be in the very same way or even worse in a broken world. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures scream that we're living in a broken world under a curse. A fragmented world, a world which is now not how it was originally created. And nothing functions as it should. We can't always draw a straight line between suffering and personal sin. After all, every day perfectly healthy babies are born to rotten parents. And children are born with extreme challenges to wonderful parents. So knowing all this, our first instinct when we see someone hurting or in need shouldn't be trying to assign blame. I mean, it's, it's what Job's friends did all over again. Verse 3, Jesus said this, Neither this man nor his parents sin. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. This, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in his life? That's why this happened? This answer is crucial. The disciples asked Jesus to explain the cause of the man's blindness. What caused this man to be blind? But instead, Jesus says that ain't going to work and replaces the cause with the purpose, the why he's blind. Jesus says God, in his mighty wisdom and sovereignty, 
appointed this man to be born blind that he planned to use it to bring glory to himself. Hmm. What does this say about our problems, our tragedies, our sicknesses, our cancers, our catastrophes, our suffering, and our troubles? There's a little crummy theology that says, well, some say what Jesus means is that God was able to use the blindness to show his work, not that he planned the blindness to show his work. God does promise that suffering and death are temporary. Jesus, God himself, willingly left the glory of heaven, became limited, and entered the creation we polluted to live with us sinners and and then be killed. God doesn't need sinlessness. He doesn't need human intellect, might, or skill to accomplish his work. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and we must learn to trust him rather than our own selves and our own wisdom. Jesus says this is exactly why he's blind. There is a divine purpose. God's will and purpose are never random. The design of an atom, the color of the rainbow, the the information in a strand of DNA, the very breath of life and countless other wonders all started not just at a point in time, but in eternity past according to God's eternal wisdom. Now stay with me here. God has never made a human being from whom he had no plan or there was some mistake. There are no such things as accidents or mistakes in God's mind or world. None. When there is something flawed genetically or some birth defect, God knows exactly what is going on the moment conception happens. If God decides on a birth that he knows will produce an illness or defect, there is a divine purpose for it. God's eternal wisdom displays his true deity. Now let's be crystal clear here. God is not the source of evil and suffering. Let's talk about what it teaches today. Satan's been the ruler of this world since the fall in the garden. And how's that working out for all of us today? Our trajectory since living apart from God's rule is nothing short of a nosedive. God permitting evil, pain, and suffering still teach today. Satan lied to us in the garden. Self-rule and sufficiency apart from God hasn't brought about that better world Satan promised and still tries to promise today. And you know what? Every one of us gets Job's test. Every one of us. Evil, pain, and suffering shows Satan hasn't been able to drive us all away from God. For many, it leads us closer. And sin, pain, and suffering deepen our understanding of Romans 8. That no one, aside from God, has the sovereign power to work together all things together for those who love him. That means his ability to use brokenness, his power over sin, and suffering to turn it into good. Grace withers without adversity. Paul's thorn prevented his pride. And there are some that dispute God's authority and purposeful control over sin, suffering, and sickness, but... I will tell you that argument to me runs into a brick wall with the biblical view. And here's just a few examples. Romans 9, 17 through 18, declares, For the Scripture say to Pharaoh, I, God, raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Amos 3, 6, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? 
Exodus 4.11, the Lord talking to Moses. Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Psalm 139.13, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In verse 16, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. And the book of Job is a killer. The Lord gives and Satan takes away. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. It says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Satan attacked Job and his family. But in the end, it was God who authorized it. Sovereign over it all. And a matter of fact, Job never blames Satan in the entire book. He addresses God as the ultimate authority and power over everything that happens, good and bad. Now, how do I really know this? How do we really... Let's, let's, how do, let's get to the meat and potatoes here. How do we really know this? It is the message of the cross. Was Jesus' death on the cross as a result of God's best laid plans gone wrong? Did human sin take God by surprise? Did the Bible's redemptive history in a fallen creation result from an eternally wise and powerful God's purposeful plans? Or was God caught off guard and trying to fix a surprising disaster? If the fallen Genesis had been a surprise to God, we would have some major theological problems and questions here. I mean, how can we be assured that another surprise won't happen in the new heaven and new earth? How can we be assured that God's plan of redemption will actually work? The fact is, it wasn't plan B or a mistake. The cross was the plan from the very beginning, all along, with one plan in mind. And that is the final glory and reign of Christ. And you know something funny about all this? Let's put this in perspective when we celebrate communion. Communion. Jesus' death. I've never heard somebody look up and say, why did you do this? How could you have let this happen? We all thank Him for it. We've been given the very meaning and example of suffering used for, for and turned into ultimate good. I find out that suffering doesn't keep me out. It, it lets me in. And Isaiah 55, 8 sums it up perfect. We're, we're in no position to make any judgments. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You know, too often I, I need to stop thinking I always know. Things that happen now and in the Bible are not all about me. They're not about you and me at all. It's all about Him. Jesus said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Verse 6, having said this, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with saliva and applied it to the man's eyes and said to him, Go. Washing the pool of Siloam. Now, I don't know why Jesus used spit and mud 
to heal this man. But you know, it shows the infinite variety of creative ways in which the Lord resolves difficulties in our lives. Where we see mud, Jesus sees miracles. Did Jesus need mud and saliva to heal the blind man or or need him to go jump in the pool to complete his healing? We know Jesus didn't need to do any of this. But, to me, this seems to be a great reminder that we're not lifeless participants in our own salvation. The blind man listened and was willing to allow Jesus to cover his eyes in mud. And when he was told to go wash in the pool, he acted in faith. Jesus is always passing by, always seeking us out. But faith that doesn't produce fruit is always dead. And so the man went away and washed and came back seeing, verse 7. So the crowd brought the man who was formerly blind to the rabbis. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes, not again, Jesus. Didn't we just talk about this last week? Not again. It was a Sabbath. He did it on a Sabbath. So the rabbis asked the man how he had received his sight. And the man replied, he he put mud on my eyes. And I, I washed and now I see. Therefore, some of the rabbis said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But other rabbis were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such great miracles? And so there was a division among them. Finally, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The rabbi still did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. If God would just show up in a miraculous way, we'd all have more faith, right? All our doubts would just vanish if we could just see another miracle. I mean, wouldn't we have rock-solid faith if we can witness more miracles? But you look at this story, you look in John 12, 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. In chapter 28 of Matthew, it gives an account of the resurrection. Jesus' encounter with his disciples. And when they saw him, some worshipped him, but some still didn't believe and doubted. I mean, can you believe that? They stood face to face with the risen Christ. This was the greatest miracle ever, and some still doubted. Matthew 21 talks about some of this too. And the blind, the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the rabbis saw the wonderful things he did, they were indignant. They were annoyed, outraged. Let's talk about the meaning of hard hearted in scriptures as we talk about blindness. Seeing isn't always believing. Believing is seeing. We first hear the term hard hearted in Exodus and is seen in Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he refused to submit to God, even though God performed all those signs. This seems to be a really solid definition of hard hearted to be presented with the truth and choose to ignore it. It's not that folks couldn't physically see Jesus. They cannot see who he is spiritually. These people are spiritually blind, hardened to the truth. Belief requires seeing spiritually 
And this is why these Pharisees and many of our friends and families are blind and hard-hearted towards Jesus. And the Bible explains this is the handiwork of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelieving so they cannot see the light of the gospel. Ephesians 4 says, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. You know, there's a heads and tails to miracles and symptoms of a hard heart. I mean, how many miracles did Jesus perform in, in front of anyone? Everyone. Luke, Mark, Matthew all talked about he healed them all. Great crowds came to him. So many people came to him. He had to be outside the city. He couldn't even stay in open places. And they still brought great crowds to him and he healed them all. I mean, John twenty-one twenty-five. I love the message uh, translation. There are so many other things Jesus did. If they were all written down, each one of them, one by one, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. Everybody saw Jesus' miracles. Not too long ago, I believe people with hard hearts were God-haters, atheists, and folks with no faith. That's what I used to think until digging into the story of Jesus walking on the water during the storm in Mark's version in 6 verse 51. And the negative words Jesus had for the disciples' reaction to him walking on the water and calming the storm. The end of that story states this. Then he, Jesus, climbed into the boat with them, the disciples, and the wind died down. The storm went away. They were completely amazed. That's it. I mean, that's exactly how I felt reading this story. I thought anyone who witnessed this miracle would react and feel the exact same way these disciples did. Look how excited I am. They should be blown away and amazed at Jesus walking on the water and calming a raging storm. But then I read the very next verse. They were completely amazed. And it says, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I mean, just hours earlier, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. This should have demonstrated Jesus' true identity to him. And how many miracles before that did he do? But none of the miracles performed earlier, nor seeing Jesus walk on the water, opened their eyes to who he really was, his, his divine identity. And just two chapters later, Mark 8, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Here we are again. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? And do you not remember? This was a real slap across the face for me. I realized being shocked, being amazed, surprised by a miracle could also be an indication of a hard heart. Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, and not remembering what God has done. Wow. Focusing more on the ordinary than the divine is a symptom of a hard heart. Miracles have no power against spiritual blindness. Verse 18 in John. They asked them, Is this your son, the parents of the man born blind, whom you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And his parents said, We know he's our son, and and we know that he was born blind, but 
How he now sees or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age and he can speak for himself. Now his parents said this because they were afraid. Because the rabbis decided that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue. And this is why they said, he is of age, ask him. So the rabbi summoned the man who had been born blind for a second round, a second time, and said to him, give God the praise. For we know this man is a sinner. That phrase, give God the praise, give glory to God, means make a full confession. Hide no part. They're telling him, please tell the truth. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Joshua 7.19, Joshua was talking to Achan. After Achan had stolen some of the toys he wasn't supposed to keep after the battle of Ai, Joshua says to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. Now tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. That's what that phrase means. Tell me the truth. And the blind man said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, whereas once I was blind, now I see. And the rabbis asked him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The man answered, and and if you don't think there's comedy in the Bible, this story just, it gets funny. The man answered, I I told you already, and, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then the rabbis hurled insults at him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. The man replied, well, here is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to worshipers of God who do his will. Since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then the rabbi said, you're a lousy softball player. No, I'm kidding. It reminds me of just what they come up with. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And Jesus heard they threw him out and found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man said, Lord, I I believe. And he worshipped him. And that is the fruit. That's the test of a true believer is that they're worshippers. Lord, I believe in you. And he worshipped. Now, let's talk for a minute about this great argument this guy just did in front of these rabbis and talk about our biblical arguments, our biblical knowledge and how good it is. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to worshipers, worshipers of God who do his will. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, that's, that's the perfect rebuttal. Drop the mic and go home. And how many times do we find ourselves right here, infinitely debating with unbelievers, the spiritually blind, and we want to give them more podcasts, more books. You know, the case for faith, great book. Proof that demands a verdict. 
And if those don't work, we come back and we give them tons more proof. Like the case for faith, volume 10. But no amount of proof or any kind of apologetics or great arguments ever seem to work. It feels like we're trying to nail jello to a tree. You ever tried that? But Kevin, doesn't faith come by hearing? What does Paul mean in Romans 10:17? Faith is translated from the Greek word pistis, which means belief, trust, or confidence in someone or something. It's key to and is used 40 times in the book of Romans. The verb form of the word is used 21 times and is translated as believe. So in this context, it's not simply the physical receiving of sounds by the ear. Hearing seems to indicate the acceptance of a testimony. Someone could read the gospel and receive it by faith without an audible word ever being spoken. Faith comes by hearing. It is not a guarantee that the story will result in faith. There's some 54 Bible verses where Jesus uses the expression, ears to hear, eyes to see. He even quotes Isaiah later. Though seeing they don't see, though hearing they don't hear, their hearts have become hardened in Matthew 13. And in 1 Peter 3.15, it talks about always be ready to give an answer. An answer. An answer. Someone is asking me a question, providing a defense or giving it an answer. For one's hope is based on the Greek word apologia, where, which carries the idea of defending something as a lawyer would defend a case. It's where we get our English word Apologetics. Peter wrote to the Christians who were being persecuted in Asia Minor. Their lack of fear in the face of suffering drove folks to ask about their reason for their faith. When's the last time living your faith caused somebody to ask you about it? I have to remember that driving sometimes. It gave the believers a perfect opportunity to give an answer. The command to always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have assumes a faith that demonstrates our hope in Christ noticeably before others. Not defend God or go on some attack. And Jesus put it real simple, if that doesn't work for you, in the instructions to his disciples on their mission trips. Whoever shall not receive you and hear your words... Kick the dust off your feet when you depart from that house or that city. That's that's easy. Kick the dust off your feet. Not kick the door down and make them get it. Jesus was telling his disciples that they were to preach the gospel to everyone. Where they received it with joy, sure, stay and teach. But where the message was rejected, they had no further responsibility. They were free to walk away with a clear conscience knowing they had done all they could do and were supposed to do. Yes, we are to go and tell everyone in the world the good news of what Jesus has done. But folks, as Lon Solomon would say, the gospel fits in a mustard seed. It doesn't take a doctoral degree to believe in Jesus. No amount of proof or knowledge will work on somebody spiritually blind. Spiritual problems, as a matter of fact, cannot be solved by worldly intellect or solution. So, how does it work? I mean, God wants to be known. The Bible says before I even open the Bible. Here, here's the irony of this sermon. What I can see, Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived, clearly seen since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that everybody's without an excuse. So what works? What do we do after we preach it and people don't get it? John 16, 8 says, And when the Holy Spirit comes, He, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit. What works after our human obligation and efforts fail? We do our part? Take a guess. Prayer. Only Jesus, the Holy Spirit, can give sight to the spiritually blind, not human power or wisdom. You know, the most powerful kind of evangelism, I'm wrapping this up, bear with me, especially for spiritually blind people, groups, ideologies that you're trying to work with, is in deep partnership with God through prayer. How's your prayer life going? You know, it's the gas gauge of our relationship with God. Only He has the power to open our eyes and save. So let's ask the question in closing, who, who is the man born blind? Who is He? He is every single one of us. A person inflicted with blindness from birth. A sin condition that is permanent and incurable. Because of our sinful nature, we're born outcasts. We are disabled or handicapped in some way. We don't even have a name until Jesus restores us and gives us an identity or something staggering. Children of God. We're all given the name, children of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And this is why it's called salvation. All throughout Scripture we see it. Israel couldn't save itself from Egypt. The thief on the cross couldn't do anything to save himself. The jailer couldn't deliver himself. This blind man couldn't heal himself. Peter couldn't save himself, sinking on the water, and in many other ways. I can relate to Peter. You know the irony of Peter? How many fish did he catch without Jesus? He was a fisherman. How many fish did he catch? Zilch. Zilch. Our nets caught nothing. He couldn't do anything without Jesus. And neither can we. All these folks could do and we can do is just believe what Jesus did to save us and them. But that's the power of God. That's true conversion. That's the difference Jesus makes. Do you know Jesus? Are you being transformed? And more importantly, can you tell folks what Jesus did for you? You may not have been born physically blind, but we all have something. A lot of times we try to hide it. We come here with masks and dress pretty. And What, what did Jesus do for you? If not, maybe He hasn't done it for you yet. Maybe you haven't really been saved from it. If you have, the proof is the fruit of exactly doing what the blind man did here and let the world know you don't have to prove anything. Your job is just to tell what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we'll keep this short and we just want to give you the praise for the greatest miracle ever. One, your resurrection. But Father, the greatest miracle is you opening our eyes to see who you are. Who you are. The grace, not because we...
studied the Bible, not because we, whatever situation we were born into, Father, it was you who revealed yourself to us. You were passing by, opened your eyes to us, and we responded. Thank you. But, Father, there's a world dying out there of blind people, dying out there of people wounded, dying out there of people searching and grasping for things that will never heal the hole that's in them. A God-sized hole that only you can fill. And I pray that you use us, Father, that you use us to pray for each other. It doesn't matter whether we like people or they rub us wrong, Father. You tell us to pray for enemies. To be more like you. So we thank you for that today. We thank you for this church family, Father. We thank you for not leaving us here alone, giving us your spirit, working through this church, Father, to reach the community here. It's a beautiful place. We get Romans 120 every day, Father. We see the beauty of your creation. But we know it's polluted. It doesn't matter how beautiful the place is. Here we are, broken. Heal us. Through Christ's name, amen.